From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert Wilkie says his firing of Deputy Secretary James Byrne won't affect the electronic health record modernization project. Wilkie says the two other high-ranking officials on the project, John Wyndham and Melissa Glynn, are still on the project and the project is still on time. FedScoop reports Wilkie says the VA will identify a nominee to replace Byrne soon. A new bill in the House of Representatives could officially establish the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program that's been at the General Services Administration for years. The FedRAMP bill recommends the program get $20 million a year for the next five years. Federal News Network reports Congressman Jerry Connolly introduced the bill. General Services Administration is looking for a contractor to improve login.gov. GSA's Technology Transformation Service has a request for information on the street for the project. NextGov reports 17 agencies use the platform now, and the office plans to expand its reach to the private sector. It takes twice as long for presidential appointees to fill seats in government now as it did when President Reagan was president. More than 1,200 appointees need confirmation from the Senate in any given administration. David Marchik is a director for the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. Dave, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks very much for having me. What do you think is the big difference between then and now that this process takes so, so long? I think it's a combination of many things. First of all, the politics has become much more difficult, so the process is slowing down. Senators are objecting to even non-consequential appointees. Second is there are still too many people that need to get through the process, 1,240 confirmations. The Senate's only in session 160-ish days a year, and so you're just trying to put too many things through a narrow funnel. There are lots of opportunities to make it better, to speed up the process, and the m most important thing is to get people in their seats. My recollection, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are between three and 4,000 political appointees. You mentioned the 1,200 number that requires Senate confirmation. Is the solution converting some of these positions to career positions, converting some of them to political appointments that don't require Senate confirmation, some combination, or something else? All of the above. <laughs> let, me let me give you a couple examples. So 1,242 positions need Senate confirmation. A lot of those don't need to be confirmed by the Senate. You take an Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, an Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs, a Chief Financial Officer, those don't need to be confirmed. So reduce the number of, of people that need Senate confirmation, that'll speed it up. The process takes too long. There are ways you can improve it. The SF-86, the form that everybody that goes in government dreads, it's 163 pages. You don't need it to be that detailed. The FBI can shorten and simplify the background check. So someone at the Department of Education doesn't need a 15-year security clearance like someone that goes into the CIA. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of opportunities to make this better. I hear stories anecdotally, too, of the process involving filling out the SF-86 for the White House and then filling out the paperwork all over again for the Senate. Basically, there's not a mechanism for that paperwork to move White House to Senate and save a step. I mean, it becomes onerous, I imagine, on people who would be otherwise willing to take these jobs. It's a very onerous process. The forms can be simplified. And the goal is to get as many people to be interested in federal service as possible from all walks of life, from inside of Washington, from outside of Washington, from business, from people that are in think tanks, academics. But you want as broad a funnel of people that can serve because the better the pool, 
the better our government will operate. I've had conversations through the, well, I guess since the 2008 campaign yes. was the first one that I covered from a transition yes. perspective, talking to folks, your colleagues at the partnership. Everybody says every election, it's never too early to start. Right. I, this is the earliest. I, Senator Warren, uh, Warren talked about transition and how she would structure all of this stuff a couple of weeks ago. That's the earliest that I've ever seen. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a very positive thing. Actually, President Bush, who gets enormous credit for being really a guru on, on transition planning, Josh Bolton, his chief of staff, did a great job. He appointed Clay Johnson to start thinking about transition a year and a half before the election. Clay was his head of personnel, longtime aide, and they worked on it for a long time. So it's never too early. Mm -hmm. What should people be looking at now inside the agencies, the career folks, thinking about the, the political people that they're working with, working for, and how that transition will play out. So what we're advising is to think about it as a transition either way. Mm -hmm. If President Trump is reelected, there's going to be enormous turnover. If there's a new president, there's going to be 1,400 new Senate-confirmed positions, or 1,200 or so, 4,000 new people, political appointees. But our data shows that even in the last three two-term presidencies, Almost 40 to between 40 and 50 percent of the people at the secretary, deputy secretary, and undersecretary level left their jobs within six months of the inauguration. So, your data also shows, though, that at this point in this administration, there are far more openings than at pretty much any point in any, or at this same point in any other administration. Yes. What does that foretell for what agencies have to look forward to and what either the second term Trump people? or the new administration's people will have to deal with. I think if there's a second Trump administration, you can expect more turnover. Mm -hmm. But there's been a lot of turnover in previous two-term administrations. If there's a new administration, I think it'll t uh, put more pressure on the career people to step up and do a better job because there are so many vacancies. Some of the folks that I have talked to over the years that worked on transition teams for uh, presidents of both uh, parties, have been talking about this story in Politico this week, yes. talking about how some of the Democratic presidential campaigns are concerned that a transition from a Trump administration to a new Democratic president could be problematic. Yes. What's your take on what you saw, not just in that story, but conceptually overall about that possibility? So I think there's a lot of hand-wringing everywhere in Washington right now. I would say that transition planning is one of the rare spots in Washington where there's true nonpartisan, bipartisan work. There are Democrats and Republicans that will help each other, help the other team to get ready. Um, in the past, the Clinton team and the Trump team worked together with the Partnership for Public Service on an effective transition, and the outgoing Obama team worked equally well with both the Trump team and the Hillary Clinton campaign on the incoming possibility for a transition. This is a rare place where both parties work together. They want to get it right. The stakes are very high. It affects our national security. And so I expect that this is not going to be a highly political area. 30 seconds left, Dave. GSA houses the transition each time. Yes. What do, would you like to see them do, if anything, to help facilitate this process? I think GSA, we've already met with them. They are getting geared up. They do a very good job. They've already selected the place for the next transition team, with this, which is the Department of Commerce. They are working up their plans. I think they're in good shape, and they'll be ready for whatever happens. Dave, thanks very much for coming. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thank you. Up next, the year ahead in government IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's the plan today and how might it change? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The White House says the fiscal 2021 budget request will be out next week. That budget will be a blueprint for where the administration's priorities are. Tracking changes to the IT budget, Mike Hettinger, president of Hettinger Strategy Group, and Rich Butel, principal at Cirrus Analytics. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks for what are you going to look at first, Rich, when this budget drops and, and see what's where? Well, remember, the budget is aspirational and, and generally it's DOA when it gets over to Congress. But having said that, we presume it's going to track um, the need for IT modernization going forward. What do you think the most important things are, both at the government-wide level and the individual agency levels to pay attention to, Mike? I think you're going to see a lot on data. Um, you know, to Rich's point, IT modernization continues to be a thing that we talk a lot about. But if you, if you think the administration, you know, over three years has put out a lot of IT-related policies, right? Cloud Smart, federal data strategy, a whole host of things like that. So I think you're going to see reflected in this, you know, an opportunity to kind of drive that to the next level and continue to fund it at roughly the 90 90, 92 billion dollar number that we talk about. So I talked to an, a budget person who used to work at OMB, is now in the private sector the other day. She said the number that we call 90 billion dollars all the time, right. if you look at the program level, it's probably more like triple that. Oh sure, that of course. Fair? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean the 90 is what we identify as mm -hmm. IT spending, right? We don't look at the embedded IT across the mission and that's where quite honestly there's a lot more IT spending than we even know about. So what do you think that means for the way that we are thinking about IT spending, Rich, and the way that we should probably start thinking about IT spending? Well I think there's a renewed focus on data as Mike had said with the Evidence-Based Policy Act implementation of chief data officers, you're seeing a lot of momentum to now utilize these key uh, value assets, um, the new oil, as uh, Margaret has called them, uh, going forward. What, what do we think is the importance of what the number is the administration attaches to the Technology Modernization Fund? The three of us have talked about TMF 10,000 times right. in the last couple of years. I, is it? Is it still a thing? I mean, I, I think it's still a thing. I mean, I think it's still a thing. You know, we were talking outside, you know, 25 million here, 25 million there, as we've talked about before, doesn't really do much for you. It's great. We want to keep the program up and running. Yes. I mean, at some point, we really need to have a discussion almost back where we were three, four years ago about whether we need two, three, four, five billion dollars um, of, of an infusion of cash to really drive IT modernization. And if we, and if we have that debate, that's one worth having. Are the agencies doing enough, Rich, to demonstrate, whether it's with TMF or in other ways, are they doing enough to demonstrate that they're pushing the button hard enough on IT modernization? I think that uh, uh, folks like Maria Road and others that I've talked to about this, um, there's no lack of proposals. Their pipeline um, is pretty robust. Um, but the problem is the funding and making sure the programs um, that are accepted into the new funding um, are successful. It's important that they be successful. Are we seeing, is it too early? I mean, we're, what, two or three years into right. the TMF now, and, and some of these projects that have been awarded, I would think, should be at mileposts where you can say, yes, this is going according to plan, right. even if they haven't started to pay the money back. I, I think we've seen success, and that, uh, you, made, you made the point I was going to make. I think we've seen success in implementing some of the changes that the IT modernization fund um, has wanted to, to drive, right? Farmers.gov, some of those things. What we haven't seen is success paying it back, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the next phase in this thing. And, and I think, you know, quite honestly, paying it back is going to continue to be a challenge because sometimes it's not as easy to say, 
I saved X number of dollars by doing this, um, and that's going to be a challenge as the agencies look to pay these back over the next couple of years. Does that kind of foil the whole model, though? The whole point of a revolving fund is the money some, comes back. Right. It might foil some of the model, but I think the idea that we're going to fund IT modernization out of a separate working capital fund is a good idea, whether that's TMF or an agency working capital so fund. So we are back to where we were three years ago, Maybe. which because that was the big argument back in the Obama administration. Right. Should the agencies have working capital funds or should there be one fund at the OMB level? Nobody could decide, so we just did both. Right. And, and now we find, Rich, that maybe one or the, at least choosing one, might be the better Well, we've been outspoken on this issue. Really, where the action ought to be is in the agency-level working capital funds. And, and the TMF, I understand it's a bright, shiny object. It's new money, and so everybody tends to gravitate toward it. But agencies finding cost savings through IT modernization are allowed to keep that money now uh, if they just set up a working capital fund. We're kind of disappointed there are four large agencies that are bollocked up with red tape and their legal folks saying there's not transfer authority and all of that. But when we worked on this legislation, we, we wrote it broadly, agencies have the authorization to set these things up. They're just not doing that. Why do you think they're not doing that? Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, some, to, to Rich's point, some have authority and they haven't decided to do it. Some don't have authority or claim they don't have authority, claim. so they need to go back to Congress and get that. But some have authority and decided specifically not to do That's it. That's right. Why do you think that is? I mean, I Well, some have other working capital funds they okay. want to use. Um, you know, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, and, and like so many things we do in government, each individual agency is going to make an individual decision, right? To Rich's point, they have blanket authority to do it in theory, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in practice. And if your lawyers and your CFO and other people say, hey, we really don't have the authority, we were restricted from doing this in the, you know, FY12 appropriations bill, then they're not going to do it. Um, and so that's part of the challenge. And, and maybe, maybe we'll see some things in the budget that say, hey, three, four more agencies want to go out and do their own working capital funds for IT modernization. That's something we're looking for. That would be great. Mike and Rich, thanks as always. Great Thank to have you, you here. You. Up next, federal employees and First Amendment rights. Straight ahead on Government Matters, is the Hatch Act helping or hurting government employees? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Hatch Act celebrates its 81st birthday this year. The Supreme Court says the act is legal, but some people think it might be time for a tune-up. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's writing about the Hatch Act at his blog, chiefhro.com. Jeff, welcome. It's nice to see you. What's the gig with the Hatch Act? So the idea is federal employees have to remain impartial at work, are not allowed to promote or denigrate a political party or candidate. What's gotten in the way of that over the years, in your view? Well, there, there are a couple things. First of all, there are restrictions on political activity at work that really apply to everybody. So you can't be you know, advocating for an, a candidate in a partisan election at work. But there are also a lot of restrictions that apply outside of work. You know, for example, you can't run for office. Uh, if you're what's called a further restricted employee, which is anybody in the intelligence community, uh, any senior executive, some GS-15, some other higher paid employees, anybody in an oversight agency like MSPB, you can't do all kinds of things. Uh, you can't even share a Facebook post from a campaign. Mm -hmm. That could get you fired. 
And so what we've got is a, is a lot of restrictions that some people argue violate uh, employees' First Amendment rights. The Supreme Court actually ruled in 1973 that it doesn't, although there was a pretty stinging dissent from uh, Justice Douglas who said that people's political views outside of work are of no more concern to the federal government than people's religious views. You know, those are both First Amendment rights. And he was, he was appalled that we would have a law that would, that would muzzle federal employees with respect to political speech, particularly political speech outside of work. So it's, 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 and then what's happened now in the, in the last 10 years, is actually in the last five years, we've had two senior political officials, one from the Obama administration, one from the, the Trump administration, be cited for violating the Hatch Act. Uh, Secretary Julian Castro and Kellyanne Conway. Uh, both of them were found by the Office of Special Counsel to have violated the Hatch Act. Uh, when President Obama got that letter, uh, he did nothing. When President Trump got that letter, he did nothing. So what we have is a law that apparently applies to rank-and-file federal employees and to career employees, but no longer applies to political appointees, at least not in the last couple of administrations in both parties. So it's not a particularly effective law anymore, and I don't think it serves a useful purpose. What do we do with it then, in your view? The, the original purpose of the Hatch Act was to give the citizens of the United States, one original purpose, was to give the citizens of the United States confidence that the civil service was going to execute the agenda of whatever person was president of the United States and whatever people mm -hmm. he or she designate to carry out the agenda that he or she was elected to carry out. Is there still, is that still important in your view? And if so, how does one go about legislating that or can one not legislate that anymore given where we are as a society? I think it's very important that career employees carry out the policy dictates of the elected officials. So the president gets to set policy whether you like his or her policies or not. So presidents get to set policies. As long as they stay within the law they get to make policy and that's fine and and career employees have to to carry out those policies whether they like them or dislike them that doesn't mean though that you have to say that political that that federal employees can't be involved in politics at all if for example uh, is there any harm in in you know, posting something on Facebook that's some speech that a politician gave uh, I don't think that harms the, the, the people at all some of the other, other things, there was an, inter an interesting uh, piece of guidance out of the Office of Special Counsel who oversees the Hatch Act. Uh, somebody who's a federal executive whose wife was going to, to run for Congress, he said, you know, what can I do and not do? One of the questions is, we're going to have a fundraiser in my home, can I make food? Nope, can't make food. So does that really hurt the government if, if an SES bakes cookies for his wife's campaign? So I think what would, should happen is the Hatch Act should be reformed. It should continue to say, you can't do political activity at work, period. Mm -hmm. It's just an absolute prohibition. When you're off duty, do what you want. It's your life. It's just like, as Justice Douglas says, it's just like your choice to attend a church or a synagogue of your choice or a temple of your choice. It's, it's your decision. So your First Amendment rights apply when you're outside of your workplace, when you're in the workplace, you don't engage in politics. And I think that is a, a reform that would make sense. And it doesn't take anything away from the American people. It doesn't detract from the, the 
confidence they should have that their government's going to carry out the policies of the elected leaders. And it would be much more manageable than the unmanageable and what appears to be unfairly uh, implemented law that we have right now. So I, I normally hate hypotheticals, but I have to do one in this case. Okay. <laughs> so let's say we have a uh, president and administration of one party and the deputy the career deputy to the secretary of whatever uh, or a high-ranking political appointee whatever it it becomes known that that person is an activist in the other party does that not worry you about the confidence that both the people in the administration and the people who are served the customers of that agency have in the con in in the ability and willingness of that deputy career person to fulfill an agenda that could be completely opposite of what we now know that person to stand for. No, no, no. And the reason is that when you look at political appointees coming in, they almost always assume that the people who are sitting there from the previous administration are partisans. So when I was in the Obama administration, there were Obama appointees who thought that the career workforce, all these career executives were, were Bushies, as they were calling them, that they were people that, that President Bush had appointed. They weren't. They were just career federal employees. And they learned over time that those folks would do their jobs. The Trump administration thinks, think, folks think all these folks are Obama people, and they're not. And a lot of them are learning that these career employees will carry out their jobs. What I think is really unfortunate about the way things are now is if you have somebody who's a rabid partisan, according to the Hatch Act, they can't talk about it, so you don't know that. Hmm. You don't know that that person might actually be trying to undermine you because they can't go out and talk about their politics. So I would much rather have things be transparent. And I think federal employees prove in every administration that they're not beholden to the previous administration or the one before that, and they do their jobs. And I think if this bill were amended, this act were amended, they would continue to do that. You have terrific analysis of this in a historical context at ChiefHRO.com. It's great to have you, my friend. Thank you. We're back in two minutes on Government Matters. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.